Today we're in 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6. So I'm going to start the timer as we start the recording and everything else that happens. Uh, today we're going to talk about monotheism and idolatry and what the issues are here. And we're going to learn theology. Imagine that. Come to church, learn the Bible, learn Christian theology. And uh, that's very important so that we may not be deceived. So let me read the text. It's just three verses. And then I'll pray and we'll start going through them verse by verse. The text is 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, quote, an idol has no real existence, unquote, and that, again, within quotation marks, there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. So let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, that we have the privilege of looking carefully into what you have said so that our minds can be conformed to the truth, our hearts filled with hope and love, and our lives changed such that we live out in a way that would honor you, the, the truth that you are indeed the Lord, the Savior, the Creator, and that we can know you through Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, in his holy name. Amen. Let's go to verse 4, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. I chose here the ESV. We've seen earlier in First uh, Corinthians that the Corinthians had slogans. Some of them express things that are true. Their application isn't always correct, and that's what we're going to see here. It's true that there's uh, only one God and that idols aren't really things. They're things that don't have the actual existence as the eternal God of the Bible. We're going to unpack that today. So I chose this translation to show that these are slogans, the second of which is really a biblical statement, but they're misusing it. We know that phrase there is exactly as in verse 1 of this chapter. So it's the, there, peri day means now concerning. Here it's just... Um, the picking up of that. It's not peri it's peri now. So it's just picking up the topic. Back to the food offered to idols. That's where this is going. So they claim to have knowledge. Paul is claiming they're abusing their knowledge in what they're doing. And so Paul is going to deal with their issue, their statements, and bring clarity from the truth of Scripture. It's true. Their one God is true. And so I'm going to cite the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Every Israelite knew this. It's one of the most profound statements in the Bible. 
Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. That's from New American Standard. Lord there, tetragrammaton, the uh, sometimes translated Yahweh, proper name, the one who revealed himself, the patriarchs, the one who is the true creator God of the Bible. The Lord is one. To highlight the position of the Corinthians, I'll go back over that. I mentioned it the last time I preached. Their statement is this. Since um, idols are just pieces of wood or concoctions of somebody's mind or stone or whatever they may be, and there's only one God who has the very character qualities and of God, therefore, they're saying the idol has no existence, so we can go to the idol temple, eat what we want, party with the pagans, and what's the problem? We know this isn't really God anyhow. So Paul is going to take up their statement, deal with it, and then the next time I preach, we'll cover the passages where he deals with the ethics that come from this. Today, to be technical, we're talking about the ontological issue. What's that mean? Uh, it means uh, it's the study of being. God as his existence, as his being. Next time it'll be about ethics. What ethics do we have based on the fact that God is the great I am? Now, so this time we have this return to the topic now, there's some discussion amongst the scholars whether uh, one God and uh, one Lord, there's no God but one. Some think that the pagans had gods with names, which we know they did, Isis, Serapis, Asclepius, Aphrodite. And then there were the mystery religion, religions with lords, okay? Do we make a distinction? I'm not sure. But the point is, there's only one true God who is, and we're going today to teach about the existence of God, the nature of God, and what we need to know about that, theology proper. Now, in the background of this, because we won't get to it until chapter 10, I must say something, because otherwise everybody will come and have a question. Paul mentions later in 1 Corinthians 10, 20, that the Gentiles are worshiping demons. And that, too, is an allusion from Deuteronomy 32. That comes up in chapter 10. For now, he's dealing with just the object. Here is your God. You buy it at the store and put it on the shelf. And if you get sick of it, you grind it up and send it to recycle. Okay, this is just that aspect of it. The fact that there's a demonic reality to pagan worship comes up in chapter 10. So we'll hold on to that. Today we're going to deal with other things in the Old Testament about the non-existence of the character qualities of the true God in the idols. So hang on. We'll talk about demons later. I have here... Um, statement that I made in my notes. As we shall see from many texts, 
There is the cognitive, only one God with the essential attributes of deity exists. But there's also the personal and the relational. No idol controls my life and receives my obedience and worship. Both are part of Shema, the one true God who's known by faith through his self-revelation to people, and in particular to Israel in the Old Testament. That's relational. We, there, there's this understanding of having a relationship with God by faith, but there's also the fact that we can't allow the idols to control our lives when we are believers in the true God. So um, I'll go on to the next slide, verse 5. I have some citation from scholars, but I will leave that be for now. I have quite a bit of material on this slide, and we can talk about some of the technical things that have been said about it. 1 Corinthians 8, 5. For although there are many so-called gods, I named some of the ones they had. Zeus was another one the Romans had. In heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. So there's all kinds of beings called God. In fact, the most popular deity that I see just from what's discussed in the popular media, uh, media, people that are moving into the area, people that we come to know. One of the most popular things that's worshipped today is nature. Our society is turning into a predominantly neo-pagan nature worshipers. And it's even assumed that uh, we have to give obedience to nature as some uh, imminent deity or pay the price. But that's not biblical theism. We believe that God created the whole universe out of nothing. We also know that nature has fallen, fallen as well as humans who bear the image of God. We also know that we need salvation. But we don't worship the creation. We don't worship the creature. We worship the creator. And there's a big difference. And so we need, we're learning how to face this new religion that's been around forever, it seems newer to us, of neo-pagan nature worship. Deities constructed by men do not have attributes of the true God of the Bible. And uh, we're going to be talking about what those are. Man-made creations are not God. Even demons, which we'll get to in chapter 10, are fallen spirits, but they didn't create anything out of nothing. So uh, the verse, uh, let me, let me uh, cite Deuteronomy 10 and verse 17. Deuteronomy 10, 17, if you want to jot this down. For Yahweh your God, he is God, he is God, of the gods and Lord of the lords, the great and the mighty God, the awesome one who is not partial and he does not take bribes. How many of you know you can't 
buy your way to good favor with God. You can't bribe God. You can't do something so he owes you and has to pay you back. He is the sovereign God. So there in Deuteronomy 10, 17, Yahweh is the God of God and Lord of Lords. So mentioned here, gods and lords. The pagans have lots of them. There's only one true God. Only one true God. I will cite a scholar here. Uh, by the way, for those who like to know what good commentaries may be out there, Paul Gardner has an excellent one that's relatively new, and I have found so much help from it, so let me cite some of that. Gardner, neither can we say that because 8.6 begins with for us, therefore 8.5 is stating something that was only true for them, uh, the weak, subjectively. This distinction between the objective Christian view that gods do not exist and the subjective view in the minds of pagans that gods do exist seems far from Paul's mind. Now let me expand on that. This you've probably run into. We're teaching some theology today. I don't apologize for that. If we don't, the pagans will teach it for you, and it's not good. Here's what we need to know. That somebody believes in a deity subjectively in the mind doesn't give any reality to the deity. The creation is still the creation. Somebody believes, well, I have my God. My God is whatever it may be. My own ability to uh, achieve. My God is sitting in nature and feeling the vibes of the universe. I've literally, and I'm sure our evangelists have run into this, had people say, I put myself into the hands of the universe. But you know, there's a lot of power in the universe, but the power can just as well kill you. A supernova has tons of power. There's a lot of heat in a volcano, but it doesn't make the volcano God. You fall in, you die. The God who created the universe out of nothing is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and personal. And in his omnipotence and omniscience, he loves, he cares, he speaks through Scripture and gives us a way of salvation. So to make things subjective versus objective isn't enough of an answer. You just can't say, well, Paul means we have our God, they have theirs, everybody gets to have their own God. No, there's only one. I remember many years ago, probably in the 80s, I was preaching on this, and there was a controversy going on in the church we were part of back then, a long time ago. And I said, how many gods are there? And the son of one of the elders, who was about eight years old, says, one. The right answer. Afterwards, some people who were disgusted with us came and talked to me, people who eventually left the church, and said, well, if an eight-year-old knows the answer, then why are you preaching out? Find something we don't know. They wanted something new. They wanted a new revelation, a new experience, something else. Don't teach us doctrine, because they, in their minds, thought doctrine just dries us up and kills us. We don't want to hear it. And I, you know what I did? I kept teaching doctrine. 
Because if you think that having an experience with the pagans is going to make life better, you're deceived. If people, many years ago, thousands, the Old Testament, were expected to learn these things, are we going to say, I already know that, give me something else? Dear ones, this is something else that gets us into trouble. So I don't apologize. We teach doctrine to the church. So it isn't about subjective or objective. Have you heard people say, whatever you believe, that's your reality? You have your reality, I have mine. You have your God, I have mine. That's not what Paul's saying. There are many statements about gods and lords, but there's only one, the God of the Bible. Some in Corinth were misusing this fact to take harmful liberties with pagan worship. We have to make sure that we distinguish between the pagans that surround us in their understanding of what to worship and the true God who must be honored with our obedience and our love and who we will worship forever if we've trusted him for salvation as we will know him and know him. And uh, this is really necessary to be taught. It's all we do. Galatians 4.8, if you want to jot this one down. But at that time, that's in the pagan past, at that time when you did not know God, you were enslaved to the things which by nature are not God's. Did you know that, now in this case, the demonic, the stoichia, the beings that lie behind the dumb idols can enslave people? You don't want to be enslaved. Even if it was just simply the gold or the silver or the piece of stone or wood, and you say, this is my God, that's good enough for me, you're still enslaved because you don't know the true God who cares for you. He cares for us. He cares for you. Cast your care upon him. It's relational. The idol doesn't care. If you burn the idol in the fire, it doesn't hurt his feelings. We'll see this in a bit in some Old Testament verses. Let's look at verse 6, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet, for us, there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. So we have a very strong statement here about the deity of Christ. It reminds us of John 1, 1 through 18. Now, I have a couple terms here. Protestants, Protestants Eric has used those. I have a slide, and we'll cover that. Uh, as we go to that next slide. But right now, this is responding to the statement in verse 5. Now, let me read to you Psalm 110, 1991. If you want to look, or uh, actually, instead of turning to it, just jot it down. Psalm 11990, Psalm 11991. I don't know if I said that right. Psalm 119, 90, and 91. Here it says, Your faithfulness continues 
throughout all generation, generations, you established the earth and it stands. They stand this day according to your ordinance. Notice, for all things are your servants. The all things statements in the Bible in this sort of context are literal. All things created stand in the service of the almighty, infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent creator of the universe. That does not imply all things are good. There's a future judgment coming. There's sin to run from. There's a Savior that we need. But the Bible is very clear about the transcendent creator. Here's a statement I wrote in my notes about this. All things statements in context like this are meant literally. Tapanta is the Greek. It's repeated twice in this verse. And applied to the Father as the source of all things. And Jesus Christ, the immediate creator. And that was Thistleton's terminology, immediate creator. Notice, there's, for us, there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things. And then speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. Both times, tapanta, the all. And there's plenty of reason to believe that that's literal in this context. I'll read to you Romans 11:36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Romans 11:36. Amen. That's really a benediction. From him, through him, to him are all things. This is Christian theology. This is God's self-revelation about something that's more important than everything else going on in the world. It's about transcendent reality. It's about what's eternal and that we won't ever regret believing the truth. We'll never regret having studied the Bible. We'll never regret being committed to the one who loves us and cares for us. And we'll never regret exiting the pagan temples. They think it's strange we don't run with them to the same excess of riot, if I'm probably thinking in King James there. But we need to get this right. Now, here's the overview slide. Now, I'm, while I'm explaining this, turn your Bibles to Isaiah 44:12. As you're turning there, There's going to be a section I want to cover that shows what the Old Testament thought about the gods. So the Protestants, the the beginning statement, many so-called gods are worshipped by pagans. That's a correct statement. Many so-called, why so-called? Because they have no uh, ontological reality, true being. They're made up. 
Hepatosis, the then part, the yet part. Only one God has the necessary attributes of deity. Eternal, non-contingent existence and creation of all contingent things out of nothing. That's a basic statement of what we know to be true about God. Now, we can talk about proofs of that in apologetics. As uh, can be simply stated, either something eternal exists or something not eternal came forth out of nothing. You have to believe one of those two because of the second law of thermodynamics. Energy degrades in a closed system. If the universe is a closed system, it cannot be eternally old. It would have already died of heat death. Or the Bible's true in what it states, that the triune God of the Bible exists from all eternity as non-created, eternal, and not dependent on anything outside of himself. This true God created all things. They're dependent, or contingent means dependent on something outside of itself. These are claims made in the Bible. Now, again, back to people criticizing and saying, oh, this is a bunch of heady stuff, and we can't expect people to know these things. Dear ones, people thousands of years ago in the Old Testament were taught these things, and they confessed them. This is not a new idea. A lot of these statements comes right out of the Old Testament. Why is it that people thousands of years ago could learn solid theology? And nowadays, well, people will say, oh, you're just this, all this head knowledge, and we just need to have fun and feel good. No, we're going to teach the truth. We need to know these fundamentals to understand anything about the Bible. And Paul's doing it right here, 1 Corinthians 8. And uh, so this means... The God of the Bible, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, are not dependent on anything outside of themselves as the eternal God. We worship the true God through God the Son, Jesus Christ. Now, have you found Isaiah forty-four twelve yet? All right. <laughs> Let me read some of this. I love how the prophets have some fun with the pagans. A uh, certain amount of irony here. I'll read. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working with it with his strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works with with planes, outlines it with a compass, it makes it like the form of a man, the, like the beauty of a man, so it may sit in a house. So there is something made by man to sit in the house, but he made it. Verse 14, surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Verse 15, then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. 
He also makes a God and worships it, and he is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. Here's the kicker, verse 17. But the rest of it he makes into a God, his graven engine, image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. The irony is biting. The absurdity is obvious. You, play, you did all these things out of what God already made. You grew the tree. You cut up the tree. You make it into this. You make it into that. You cook your food. You do all of this. When you get all done, you go, thank you, God. You made it. If you make the God, you can destroy the God. But when your life is on the line and you're facing death and you have no hope, do you think that that idol cares about you? No. The idol can't deliver you. It's just going to turn into dirt. piece of wood turns into dirt. So there's mocking irony in Isaiah 44. Now let's go to some applications. Details about the doctrine of God must be taught to the church. Well, you know that by now. That's what we're doing. Idolatry, idolatry is still a danger to Christians. Oh, yes. We can't just think all those people back then didn't know any better. We will, nobody today would be an idolater. Oh, really? There's lots of idols. I read a book when I was in seminary called Idols for Destruction. And it talked about the idols of uh, contemporary civilization, as, at least in the 90s. Idols for Destruction. So it's still a danger. Third, idols cannot save. God calls all to turn to him for salvation. That piece of wood that you just cut out of the block of wood doesn't care one lick whether you live or die. Cannot answer your prayer. Cannot do anything whatsoever. But the true God, the transcendent God, the loving God, the creator God, the all-powerful God, he cares. And he can hear in his omniscience the prayers of billions of people simultaneously. No created being can ever do that. It's a great proof of the deity of Christ because he does hear the throne of grace. Let's go to some more as we give some proof for the existence of God from what we know about reality and the world we live in and what's said in the scripture. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. The sovereign I am. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying... My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. In God's providence, I was reading this, preparing for the sermon, going back over a book I'm going to write about as I've got, I've got it all marked up now. It was a post-millennial book that I totally disagree with. But in the book, they were claiming 
that man has dominion over time and history. I saw that statement, and I just, what? I was working on this, and I read this statement in this guy's book. Man has dominion over time and history. What does it say? Who has this dominion, man or God? The Bible claims God does. What does it mean to have dominion over time? Declaring the end from the beginning. Ancient times, things are not yet done. My purpose will stand. Dominion over history. This is a clear statement from the Bible. How can you get it wrong? It's, they get it wrong because their theology has nothing to do with exegesis. It has to do with philosophy. And we need to get our practice, our beliefs, and what we teach grounded in verse-by-verse exegesis of Scripture. I'll quote Dr. Oswald of the Isaiah passage. It is all the former things that have been recorded in Israel's memory, including creation, the flood, the patriarchs, the exodus, the conquest, the judges, David and Solomon, and on and on, says Oswald. Remembering these things, because remember these things because their testimony is unanimous. Only the being who did all that has the right to be called God. There is no other. Too bad the people around are so deluded about this. A God made in the image of man. A God that exists in the mind of humans. Nature is God, and somehow God keeps catching on fire. Um, We don't get it if we don't understand the Bible. I, I wrote this also. God speaks through special revelation. God speaks through future prophecy, which, when fulfilled, serves as objective evidence for his claims. That's what's going on here. I have some material that I think, because this comes from a section about Cyrus. So let's uh, look at some more of that. Isaiah 46, 11. Now, this is a reference back to Cyrus. We'll look at that. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purpose and I will do this, do it. Who is this bird of prey? Well, this, it turns out, is a prophecy about Cyrus and that this prophecy given by Isaiah existed a couple hundred years before Cyrus came in on the scene of history to be used regarding the Jews in captivity. And I'll read some about that. So here's, I I brought a printout. You can look this up. By the way, recently they found a thing called the Cyrus Cylinder. Put Cyrus Cylinder into your search engine, and you'll find a picture of it. It was discovered, I believe, in the 20th century, and it has details about some of these things that happened in history predicted by Isaiah before the fact. In fact, this is so startling that the critics came along and said, well, this couldn't have been. How could you predict something 200 years later and it comes to pass? How can you say Cyrus? Now Cyrus comes a couple hundred years later. So they said there must be two Isaiahs. 
And then somebody else says, no, there's three Isaiahs. But the biblical writers only knew of one. I talked to Eric about this, and he was sharing that there's some grammatical details that would indicate there's one Isaiah, and that they're just wanting to rule out Bible prophecy. And furthermore, even if they try to get rid of Cyrus, they're still stuck with Messianic prophecy that was fulfilled in the first advent. And we have scrolls found, like in the Dead Sea, that have some of that material before Messiah came on the scene of history. The better thing is just believe the truth and believe the evidence. God declares the things that are not and then brings them to pass. Here's something I found in a website called Evidence Unseen. Claim, if Isaiah really wrote from Israel before the exile, which was 739 to 681 B.C., then he would have... then then he would have predicted Cyrus by name over 200 years in advance. Cyrus didn't reign until roughly the 500s B.C. And then it mentions Ezra. Critics says this website claimed that this evidence against the single authorship of Isaiah because a singular author could not predict such a thing. Well, what they're, they go on to say is they're just prejudiced against the supernatural. This can't be, so therefore it didn't happen. That's just a philosophical idea. The reality is it did. It did happen. Look up the Cyrus Cylinder and read some things about it. You'll find it for yourself. So we have predictive prophecy. And uh, let's go now to 1 Corinthians 12, 2 and 3. We want to talk about the difference between dumb idols and the Bible. And then we'll go back and look at some more about uh, prophecy in Isaiah. We'll go to 1 Corinthians 12, 2 and 3. One of the main claims that Paul is making is that God has spoken. And that what we know about God is through his own self-revelation. And that we're not like the idolaters who are stuck groping around, making things, imagining things, but we have objective, spoken words from God about himself that are verifiable with the abilities he's given us as humans, creating his image to know what evidence actually looks like and become accountable to believing the truth. Notice what it says let me read verse 1, which I didn't have on the slide for lack of space. 1 Corinthians 12, 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. There's another Perry Day passage. Now, new topic, spiritual gifts. Verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is a curse, anathema. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not going to explore everything about this because eventually we'll get to chapter 12 as I preach through 1 Corinthians. But there's uh, some key things that we learn here that are applicable to what we're already studying in chapter 8. 
The word let go means to bring or to take. Let astray, apago. And it, it, it means to lead along, carry, bring. So to, to mute idols, you were led along. Why? By your sin. They would rather have the idol than the living God who has spoken. Because God speaks not only truth, he speaks ethically and morally about how we live. The ten words, for example, what we call the Ten Commandments. The idols are very open-minded about how you live. In fact, many of the gods of the pagans are more immoral than a lot of humans are. They go to gods in their temples who in their mythology are really wicked. They just wipe out people because they feel like it, and they do all kinds of wicked things. So Paul says, you were led to mute idols. Now, what's the issue? Well, they are wanting to be like the pagans, and the the gods of the pagans had these utterances, and so they wanted the same. And so Paul's giving them a way to know what utterance is actually from God and what is not. Now, I wrote an article about this concerning discerning of the true work of the Spirit. And we also have a video, I think, on critical issues. But the long and the short of it is the Holy Spirit empowering the Christian to speak is the source of the gospel being preached. The source is what God did in history. How do we know what's from God? Our doctrine of Christ. Not just utter the words, because false cults will say Jesus is Lord. They'll have the banner over their head. One famous false teacher whose Jesus is the born-again Jesus who lost his deity, which makes him contingent, therefore not God, over his head says Jesus is Lord. But he's a false teacher. So this means speaking the true doctrine of Christ and standing by it and living by it and preaching it. That's how you discern spirits. Uh, notice it says the, you were led astray to mute idols. Habakkuk 2.18. What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it? Or an image, a teacher of falsehood. For his maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions a mute idol or speechless idols. God has spoken. The speechless idols speak through false teachers who claim to be speaking for God. It's the religions. It's the temples. It's the uh, self-help in the name of God. Or you can be your own Christ. Or you can have the Christ consciousness. Or you can achieve an altered state of consciousness. Or you can uh, evolve into deity. Or you can get become one with the universe and evolve and there's no future judgment. All of that are the speeches that come from dumb idols. They're actually demons inspiring false teachers. The true God speaks about the truth of Jesus Christ. That's how we discern. Dr. Fee says this, In keeping with his Jewish heritage, Paul scorns the idols as mute because they cannot hear answer prayer, nor can they speak. In contrast to the Spirit of God, says he who can and does. But he has also argued argued earlier 
that the mute idols represent demons, 10, 20-21, who can and do speak through their devotees. Fee, most likely, therefore, is reminding them of what they well know, that in some of the cults, inspired utterances were part of worship despite the mute idols. If so, says Fee, then his concern is established early on, as the next sentence seems to corroborate, that it is not inspired speech as such that is evidence of the Spirit. Many of them had already known similar phenomena as pagans. Rather, what counts is intelligible, I agree with Fee, intelligible and Christian content of such utterances. You judge the content of the message, not the feeling, the demeanor, the appearance, the ecstasy, or whatever you want to call it, the, the eloquence, the surrounding excitement of everybody hearing it. None of that matters. What matters is intelligible content. What does this mean? And is it the true doctrine of Christ? And it doesn't agree with Scripture. That's what, what he's saying. Dumb idols versus the message of the Spirit, which is Jesus is Lord, which is shorthand for the biblical doctrine of Christ in all of its fullness, in all of its glory, through whom he created all things. That better be there. If Jesus is simply a man without deity in hell fighting Satan, hoping he can get out, Got the wrong one. Message of a dumb idol. Idols cannot save, and that's where we're going with this here. Isaiah 45, 20, 21. Isaiah 45, 20, 21a, I should say. The gospel is in the Old Testament. We're called to come to God. Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord, which is Yahweh here? Gather together. He's calling a council. Come together. Tell us what Tell us about your wooden idol. Tell us about what you worship. What did you get out of it? Have a consultation. What do the demons say to you? What what did you get from nature? People will travel to to another continent. Learn how to get into an older state. Learn how to find uh, the, the gods or the reality, or enlightenment, or true peace, or oneness with the universe. And they'll spend all this money and go through all this effort because they're going to achieve some absence of mind or a blank mind and come into this other state. But we know people tried doing that, and they realized it was demonic, and the demons turned on them. Because it isn't really true. But here, the Lord's calling a council meeting of the non-entities that's going to argue with him about his being. 
Who do you think is going to win that debate? But look at this. We're going to go to the next half of verse 21b, 22. This is amazing. Here's the gospel. And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. That is so powerful. Isaiah 45, 21b and 22. Where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? Visit the Himalayas. People spent a lot of money. Rich people spent a lot of money. We're going to go get a view right at the most beautiful place on earth. We see the exquisite creation, the perfect view. Only rich people get to enjoy. And we're going to sit here and we're going to find God. Whereas a poor person with nothing going for them, laboring hard, hurting, sick, poor, needy, whatever it may be, unable to travel anywhere, can cry out to the living God, and he hears us. He forgives sins. He redeems sinners. He gives the gift of eternal life. He saves us from his coming wrath. You don't have to have something going for you, because none of us really did. We need the Lord. We need Jesus Christ as Savior. This is the universal call to salvation in the Old Testament. There is a universal call. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, the Creator, the non-contingent, immediate Savior, as to use that terminology, who lived a sinless life, who predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, who did many mighty deeds and mighty works. Eric had a great sermon on that last week, and therefore proved who he is ultimately predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection and was raised before witnesses. He ascended on high. He ascended to the right hand of God, Psalm 110, verse 1. And he hears us when we call out to him. So here is God in the midst, through his prophet Isaiah, in the midst of idolatry and unbelief, saying, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. I'm God, there's no other. The God of the Bible is the true God, and he'll hear you. You don't need a penny. You need to cry out to him. You don't have to afford a ticket. Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else. As Peter preached this. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. This isn't a choose-your-own-God process. This is the self-revelation of the true God who's commanding all men everywhere to repent, meaning human beings, by which we must be saved. Day, in Luke Acts, the divine necessity. Saved, sozo, means to be rescued from serious peril. And the greatest peril we all face, no matter who we are, some 
have a lot of things. Some are healthy, some are sick, some are young, some are old, some have great friends, some are lonely. There's all these different conditions a person can be in. But think about it. The one peril that exceeds every peril that ever will be is the wrath of God against sin. There will be one day executed. And to be saved means to be rescued from serious peril. And the peril from which God will rescue you, if you have not turned to him, do so today, is his own wrath against sin. And as we believe his promises, no matter who we are, no matter what people think of us, no matter what we did, if we have salvation by crying out to the Lord Jesus Christ, believing on him and trusting him alone, we have the greatest riches anyone will ever have. Eternal life, an eternal future, and magnificent promises that God gives us. And God keeps his word. Cyrus did show up in history, and he did. He was used by God at the time of the captivity. God will keep his word concerning his son, who will also rescue the perishing. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Thank you that we're allowed to look into these beautiful promises you've given in your word, that we can even talk about you because you've revealed these things to us through your scripture as a glorious privilege, one that we're not really worthy of. Thank you, Lord, that we can know that you are, that you exist, and that you save sinners. And Lord, as we conclude this service, I pray that if anyone here who's hearing this has not yet called upon your name, turned from sin and turned to you, that today would be the day of salvation. And for those of us who have done so in the past by your grace, may we continue to live and grow in you and give you all the glory. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.